Coming up in this podcast, Julie Bishop, unemployment, big contract wins, interim profit reports, Airbnb, Rottnest Glamping, John Langlant, and our special report on junior miners. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast, and welcome Mark Beyer. Uh, firstly, Mark, Julie Bishop has called it a day. Now, I don't think anyone would have missed that. <laughs> but amid very distractive headlines about her shoes, uh, WA is losing a major influence uh, on the Federal Liberal Party. Yeah, look, this is a, a big moment in um, Western Australia's representation in Canberra. Julie Bishop has been a Member of Parliament for 21 years and has achieved some very significant breakthroughs for the Liberal Party. Uh, first female foreign minister and also deputy leader of the party for a long time and her leaders uh, kept on changing. Leaders, yes. That's right. Um, but look, it's, it's, I guess it's interesting to reflect on her career. Uh, I guess in a way uh, her breaking ground also highlighted the fact that there are so few other women who've achieved at a similar level in the political sphere, um, more so for the Liberal Party. Um, there's been speculation ever since she stepped out of the, uh, well, she stood for the leadership um, after Malcolm Turnbull uh, got the boot, um, got very little support. So that's sort of a, a slight tarnishing, I suppose, when she thinks back on her time in Canberra. Um, but overall, people will think very positively about what she achieved. She had been playing her cards close to her chest. Her, her public line had always been, it was her intention to run again in the next election. Um, and yet many people suspected this is the way that she'd go. Yeah. Um, she's come out and declared, uh, contrary to most polls, that she thinks the Liberals will win the next federal election. Um, but if she had hung around, there would be a serious risk that she'd be sitting on the opposition benches yeah. uh, with her current colleagues. And I think there was a view that she was obviously also holding out to make sure she could have some sort of large say in, in who follows her in the Cedar Curtain. Yeah, look, there's been a number of names thrown around, um, but none with any great certainty. Clearly, she would like a woman to succeed her. Uh, she's done a lot uh, with Danielle Blaine, former Liberal Party state president, to recruit more women into the party and to actually help them uh, develop professionally. So they're building up um, a base of women who are potential future members of parliament. Yeah. And, and possibly our ministers and leaders. Uh, but yeah, that'll be one to watch. Uh, there's been speculation that either Christian Porter or possibly Matthias Corman might try to win pre-selection. I think that's less likely, but can't rule it out. Certainly Christian Porter has talked about being committed to the seat of Swan, which of course is fairly marginal, only a margin of about 4% there. Mm. Whereas Curtin, there in the western suburbs, the margin something like 20%. Yeah. So that's the, the safe seat that people um, eyeing off a long career in politics love to have. Um, so yeah, so there might be a little bit of tension, a little bit of argy-bargy, but we'll see if Julie Bishop gets her way and gets a an up-and-coming woman to succeed her. Yep, absolutely. Watch that closely. And look, uh, I guess the, the last point on that, uh, influence of Julie Bishop is not just through being a, a political figure, but also a great fundraiser, and there's lots of talk about, you know, that the impact that she's had over the years of raising funds for the Liberal Party, which have not just helped West Australian, uh, the Lib Liberal Party in Western Australia fund elections, but also helped other 
jurisdictions. So, uh, you know, I guess I guess that's a loss, although, of course, she may continue to do so in behind the scenes. Now, Mark, uh, getting to the economy, unemployment in WA has reached a record number at 98,000. Now, Mark, I actually hate those stats like that, uh, or used like that. Um, it's, an, it's a bit like the number of millionaires in the state or the dollar impact of natural disasters, they're not really fair comparisons over time. Uh, So let's first of all steer to the most appropriate statistics which do carry over time. What's the unemployment rate? Have you got that? (laughs) I do, I do. They're 6.8% in Western Australia. So that's pretty high. Yep, a 17 year high, um, up from 6.4. And in stark contrast to the national figures where it's 5%. Yeah. And it, was, it was steady at 5% nationally. So um, particularly bad week for these numbers to come out because just one day before, Mark McGowan had made his pledge to create 150,000 jobs yeah. over the next few years. Um, I mean, that didn't mean a lot. There was actually no policy sitting behind that um, aspirational goal that he outlined. Um but this highlights a challenge for him. Now, in a way, the official measure of unemployment has been, if you like, skewed because a lot of extra people came into the labour force. So a thing called the participation rate, a little obscure, but basically um, an extra 8,000 people, according to the estimates by the Bureau of Statistics, an extra 8,000 people came into the labour market in WA which means they're either in a job or looking for a job. So it wasn't as though there was a collapse in the labour market. In fact, there were more jobs created, but that was swamped by all these extra people coming into the labour market. Mm. Um, hence, so it's a, you, know, you could argue it's a bit of a statistical quirk there. Um, but overall, though, 6.8% versus 5% nationally, not a good look. Quite significant. And let's just think about those numbers. So 98,000 unemployed, I mean, that's still a real number um, at 6.8%. So if we say real, you know, like real, full employment is 3% unemployment, we're talking about forty-five or 40,000 unemployed, you know, so there's about 50,000 or, yeah, about 55,000 jobs that need to be created to get us to full employment. And he's going to try and he's pitching 150,000 jobs. So what are we going to have? Over several years. Okay, I get that. But but nevertheless, you know, and, and, and those jobs don't come without families moving here. So we're going to have to see potentially 300,000 people move to WA. At a time we've got an ageing population, people typically moving out of the workforce and less people coming in and a tougher uh, regime around visas and the like. That's a pretty tough ask. So, I mean, I'm looking at it and thinking if I was the Labor Party to achieve that, I'd be p- pitching to, the, to uh, you know, the, the nation, my national colleagues maybe in the future to relax visa laws. I'd also be saying to myself, well, a job created could be a part-time job that's one day a week or whatever, which we often hear unions railing against but that casual stuff is jobs and if and if someone has two or three jobs going that's creating potentially creating those job numbers that he wants so mm. it'll be quite interesting to see whether uh where 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 labor sits where the labor government sits in a few years time if those sort of things are happening and if that suits their target and yeah you know, and governments have only so much say over these things yeah you know, it, it's industry out there that dictates 
the kind of jobs that get created. Yeah. If it's part-time and or casual, if that's what suits business, then that's the way it's going to be. Yeah. Governments can't control that. And the other thing that you point to there, um, or in terms of population growth, we've seen this trend where population growth in WA has been below the long-term averages for several years because we've reverted to that pattern where young people are leaving WA and moving interstate. You know, everyone's heading off to Melbourne. Yeah, uh, That's the popular spot. Um, if that does reverse, um, the Liberal Party pointed out quite rightly, if there's a pickup in population growth, which would support jobs growth, that in turn requires more spending on infrastructure, like schools and hospitals and roads, yeah. which in turn puts pressure on another one of the Premier's goals about maintaining a budget surplus. That's going to be challenging as well. <laughs> All right. Better, better him than me, is that there? <laughs> uh, good luck. Look, I have to say, but, but, the big but in this is I, I think that, you know, looking at many of the markers out there, uh, I still think WA is in a better position, even with that record unemployment and everything, or, you know, not record, sorry, 17-year high in unemployment rate. I still feel it's better, we're better poised than, you know, two years ago. I think that, and I think that the, the difficult signs, the talk now is, um, is interest rates coming down and the like. That's driven by concerns about the eastern states, the major economies there. So I actually believe we're in a better position and maybe, uh, you know, some of the skill shortages that we're seeing, we may actually be able to get some flow of people coming here to solve that as well. So not all bad news. That actually leads on to uh, the next topic we were going to discuss. Well, exactly. Speaking of jobs, uh, so there were some big contract wins on WA projects, and yeah, which bodes well for the state's growth. Come on, tell us what what happened. So almost a mismatch there between what these sort of high-level stats are telling us and what's happening at a lower level. Um, Look, we've spoken many times about the the pickup in big projects, um, iron ore, lithium, and some big gas projects in the offing. And then that flowed through. So Monodelphus won a big contract with BHP. They were looking for 400 people. Um, Sithmec won a big contract with Albemarle, one of the big lithium projects being built down at Kemerton, 300 people. Clough announced a big contract with BHP, 300 people. And these sort of flow right through. Primero, listed engineering company, they're picking up work on these sorts of projects. Uh, BGC Contracting, They've picked up a big contract down at Kemerton. So, you know, this is where um, the big investment decisions um, flow through to mainstream businesses. And then, of course, the names I just mentioned, they'll be putting on a whole bunch of studies to help them do the work. So reinforces the fact that on the ground, there's some good reason to be positive about the outlook. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I guess, um, albeit not... It, it, it's you know all within our means in a way, isn't it? That, that some of those that growths, it's positive, but it's not the massive trajectory we were seeing ten years ago. Uh, thankfully, and that's right. We want it to be sustainable. Yeah, and uh, and I guess there's still those threats, which you know I know we've got. Um, and I'll mention it later with, with uh, Ben Wyatt, treasurer, speaking uh, in the, in, in the, this this month around the threats to the WA economy and you kind of look and you, you hear this talk at the moment. I mean, that's the talk this week that there's 
that the Chinese, some Chinese ports have stopped Australian uh, importing Australian coal, thermal coal, and you go, hmm, well, what if they did the same with iron ore, for instance? And you know, and you hear softness in lithium markets. So, I, I still think that long term, very good, but I do see that companies are being being cautious about the way they do things. Um, now, Mark, uh, half year results, turning to the more directly to the stock market. In my view, they don't really have the same deep dive that we get from the full year version, um, and especially, of course, when you see the, the the you get the preliminary annual results and then you get the annual report and you get a lot of information. But the half years are still a good guide for investors. So, what have you noted this season? Yep, it's so. Look, a lot of the big names in town have put out their interim results. Uh, companies like West Farmers, Fortescue Metals Group, among them. One thing that really stood out uh, is the increase in dividend payouts, and this has a bit of a political dimension to it. So West Farmers has done a lot of restructuring over the past year. They've sold off several businesses, most notably the Coles business, and so they've actually reported a bumper profit after some restructuring in prior years, which had a cost to bear. So they came out and they've announced a special dividend. one dollar a share on top of their regular dividend, um, so you know a nice big payout. Similarly, Fortescue Metals Group, uh, they've announced you know, their regular dividend was eleven cents. On top of that, special dividend of nineteen cents. Right. And of course, the biggest beneficiary there is their one-third shareholder, Andrew Forrest. Mm. So he's got a, a bumper dividend check coming his way. And is this around the threat to franking credits and that sort of thing? Absolutely. And look, you know, Flight Centre, big national company, all of these companies have pointed to the potential changes by a federal Labor government, if they're elected at the next election, um, around tightening up on franking credits um, and the, uh, the, the cash refunds that can go particularly to retirees. So obviously a lot of angst around that mm. has a big impact on uh, retirement incomes. And so these companies are sitting on these franking credits saying, well, let's get them out now um, and give them to our shareholders. Right. Um, but also a measure of some very healthy numbers being reported by these businesses. I was going to say, because it's a bit of a one-off, isn't it? It, 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 it? If if I get it that you're trying to look after your shareholders, it makes sense very much. Um, but in in a different way, it doesn't make... West Farmers shares more valuable in the longer term because, you know, it's just a short-term uh, decision, isn't it? Well, that's right. You just well, you're a beneficiary if you're a, a shareholder at that right. moment in time. Yeah. Um, but then when you'll be making your evaluation about well, what's the future earnings and what's the sustainable dividends in future? Mm-hmm. Um, but nice if you're a shareholder at the moment. Yeah. And, and you're I, getting uh, a very healthy boost. And I guess you could look at it a different way and go: these companies look after their shareholders. And, you know, we don't know what the future lies, so that's good to know rather than, you know, missing an opportunity. Um, Now, Mark, just switching to a very different subject, uh, the Airbnb inquiry, which we talked about last week, it continued this week. Uh, And the the global company hit back at negative claims about its impact. So what what, what was out in the air this week? So Sam McDonough, he's the country manager for Airbnb. Former uh, West Australian. Former West Australian and a speaker at one of our business news breakfasts a few years back. Um, So there's this state government or state parliament inquiry into short stay accommodation. And of course, Airbnb is the big gorilla in that market. 
And we've previously heard from groups like the Australian Hotels Association and the Tourism Council. Their members are concerned about the competitive threat posed by Airbnb. Um, and their argument is that it's an un, uh, not a level playing field, uh, that people can come along and buy a house and put it on the market for Airbnb and they're not subject to all the same rules and regulations um, as a, a hotel or some other registered uh, traditional business. It's been fascinating to see all these lobby groups commissioning their own, quote, independent expert reports from economic <laughs> consulting groups. Yep. Lo and behold, all coming out with results that uh, say exactly what the client wants to hear. So the Tourism Council's got an expert report saying Airbnb comes at a huge cost to jobs and economic activity in WA. And then Airbnb's got their own independent report saying exactly the opposite. <laughs> so then you've got to, I guess, drill down below that and look at what's really going on in the marketplace. And there is a particular concern around people that buy a property. So, you know, traditionally Airbnb, it was you know, rent out the spare room. But of course, people are now buying an entire house using that as an Airbnb property. Now, Airbnb is claiming there aren't actually many properties that fall into that category. They were uh, not quoting exact numbers, mm. um, but they were arguing it wasn't all that significant. Now, that's contrary to what I think a lot of people would be thinking anecdotally um, when you look around the market and hear what's available and, yeah. and read what's available when you jump on the website. Um, you know, and I think Western Australia is not alone in this regard. Um, I think we said before, you know, all around the world, people are grappling with how to deal with these disruptive entrants to, to traditional markets. Yeah, and look, you know, it was fascinating to hear Sam McDonough's, uh, you know, the uh, the metaphor I think he used was uh, trucks are regulated differently than cars and therefore hotels should be regulated differently than houses. And I kind of got that. I thought that was neat. Uh, having said that, in some ways Airbnb have argued that they're not Uber and yet there is that car analogy that Uber is the car versus the taxi. So taxis are regulated way, way more, and they're cars, right, <laughs> than, than Uber. Um, look, I just, you know, as I said last week, I think there's, there's some compromise here. I, I would leave it to local authorities in my view. I reckon um, that it's WA just benefits from less regulation. And, you know, I, I think I mentioned I stayed in a, a Airbnb in a Margaret River house uh, earlier this summer, first time. Now, you know, does it need a fire escape and, and, and you know, um, uh, sprinklers on the ceiling and, and, you know, blah, blah, blah? I can't imagine so. My house doesn't have that. Why would, why would uh, uh, an Airbnb house need that? Uh, on the flip side, I do get it that if I was neighbours to an Airbnb and there was the constant carry-on uh, of of people partying and that sort of thing, I would I would be concerned. So uh, to me, that's more about if Airbnb should be looking at its own, you know, um, at regulating itself to keep that kind of stuff out because it probably doesn't suit the Airbnb house owners either. And they say that they've got a process in place so that if those issues arise, that they've got um, a mechanism to deal with that. And, and you know, they're very conscious of um, the impact 
um, you know, they don't want a community backlash. Yeah. And I guess this is an example where you know any industry, if if change is too fast, if if the incumbents get um, upset too much, there's that's when you risk a regulatory backlash, which can sure, be negative. Sure, sure but so, regulation is often the reason for the change to come too fast because, you know, all these little laws mount up and it gets difficult for new entrants and then suddenly the game changes in a way. You know, there's always been bed and breakfasts and people have always been able to rent their homes. And I have to say, last year I went to London and I looked at using B&B, uh, Airbnb for the first time and then a mate said, oh, don't be stupid, stay with me. Now, what's the difference? You know, <laughs> I I still went to London and stayed in someone's house. You know, uh, so you know I kind of I kind of think that we've got to be careful here. But I do have some sympathy for people who who who've invested in an area and then find that they're struggling against people who don't have the same uh, rules and regulations that they have. But maybe there's too many rules and regulations on people who are in the formal accommodation market. Um, and now, Mark, uh, let's, well, <laughs> one place that is definitely not competing with Airbnb, in my view, is Rottnest, um, where the new glamping resort opened this week, one of the most popular stories on our website. That's right. Things move slowly on Rottnest, and that's one of the attractions for a lot of holidaymakers, uh, but it can also be a, a level of frustration. Uh, when it comes to quality of services and quality of accommodation. Um, things have not changed a lot over there. This is, in fact, the first brand-new accommodation in about 30 years. Mm. So it's at the old Tentland site, um, up towards the basin and Pinkies Beach. Um, so glamping, you know, glamorous camping. So these are uh, canvas tent structures but with a solid floor but with their own um, ensuite and in some cases with their own little kitchen area lounge chairs tables so uh, Delia Price went over there as a, a guest of the developers had a look around um, it looks quite nice um, and quite a range of prices um, I think they start off at about 120 a night for the smaller ones right up to $600 a night. Right. So not what we think of normally as a tent, but um, no. these are not tents. No. Um, but yeah, you've got a spot overlooking Pinky's Beach for $600 a night. So there's a another choice in the market. Um, yeah, and it thing. comes, it's got its own little resort area there with a pool and bar and everything, hasn't it? That's right. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's not just sitting there in isolation. Which I think is a um, fabulous addition. Yeah. I mean, I haven't been there. I've seen, I've seen it in the process. Well, so. I'm heading over there in a few weeks. Right, uh, can, got a, a birthday at uh, the Rottnest Hotel, and then we decided to we're going to stay a night and try it out. So yeah, I'll, be able, I'll be able to give some first-hand feedback. Good, good. Um, but look, you know, it's there's been lots of discussion for a, you know the past decade in particular about getting some new developments happening on Rottnest, and it's been quite excruciating at times to see how hard it's been. So you know, hats off to so Bailey's group. They're the yep. people that used to own the Rottnest Express ferries. Yep. They're the developer. Uh, they've got Discovery Parks in there as the operator with them. So you know, hats off to them and the authority over there for finally getting something developed. Yep. Um, and then, of course, the next one that's uh, promised is the very substantial upgrade of the Rottnest Hotel yep. that uh, Printable Group are planning to do. So that'll be a, a significant upgrade in both the, the number of rooms and the, the quality of facilities there. 
much needed. And I guess, Mark, it comes back to that, you know, people who, you know, it's, and in my view, my, we're, all, we're all cautious that you don't want to, you know, you don't want to wreck Rotnest. I think we're all into that. But, but there's always a minority that don't want anything to happen and they're very vocal. And, and I think the shame of it is good ideas get blocked and blocked and blocked until everything doesn't work properly. And it's like, and then it becomes, you know, it's sort of all too late and, you know, and, and I think Rotnest has really struggled. These things should have happened 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, Elizabeth Key, there's a classic example, you know. People blocked it and whinged about it and now it's there and it's a wonderful addition to our city. It's yet to even be fully finished. And, you know, I, I get really irritated with, with the naysayers who don't want anything to happen. Um, now, Mark, uh, John Langelon, someone that you and I have dealt with uh, over more than two decades, I'd say. He's the inaugural chair of the state's new infrastructure WA body. That's right. So, in fact, we spoke last week about Infrastructure Australia, uh, the national body putting out a list of priority projects in Western Australia and pointing out that there's quite a mismatch between their list of priorities and what the WA government is doing. And so it raised this question of, we should have a body here that does something similar, a body that has both government and private sector members that has a, a long-term view, a 20-year view on what's the infrastructure requirements for Western Australia. Where should the roads be built, the railways, the ports, etc. cetera. Uh, this is something the McGowan government has talked about and they came out during the week and said the legislation is going into parliament and that John Langelont would be the first chair. Um, now, there'd been speculation that John would take this role and uh, that's been confirmed. And look, he's got an interesting background for, if you think about someone to take this role. I mean, he was under treasurer um, early in his career. Mm. He ran the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, he worked for Kerry Stokes for a while. He then headed up the Okagee Port and Rail Project, uh, one that didn't get off the ground because of the downturn in the iron ore market. Um, and now he's on a, a whole bunch of boards and also someone who's done a lot of studies over the years, famously, uh, did the report uh, commissioned by the Carpenter government into where the next big major stadium should be for Western Australia. Mm. He recommended redeveloping Subiaco Oval. Yep. Uh, Colin Barnett came to power and said, no, nope, we're going to build it at Burswood, and that's where we've got the stadium. And in a way, that's an interesting example because you know, this body, Infrastructure WA, it'll be an advisory body, but end of the day, governments will still make decisions uh, yeah. as they should. Um, so look, you know, I think John's got uh, good capability to take this role. Um, one of the interesting issues that's been thrown up is that there's already some key commitments by the current government, you know, Metronet being a prime example, um, and they're also doing a lot of work around the Westport Task Force about you know where the next whether whether we should stay at the Inner Harbour at Frio or build a new Outer Harbour in Coburn Sound. Um, I suspect those commitments will be, or those decisions might be removed from the ambit of Infrastructure WA. So it'll be interesting to see. Well, I hope so, because otherwise we then have another reason to hold things up and delay, because, oh, no, we've got to wait till Infrastructure WA makes a finding, whereas, you know, I thought that was the point. Westport was a decision the Labor said in, in, in opposition, went to the election saying we're going to do that, and now they've pointed a body... I thought to get on with it, but now it's becoming a debate point. If they then shift responsibility to, or you know, wait for a decision or advice from Infrastructure WA, to me that would be just 
kicking the can down the road. Mm. Um, and yet, you know, once once John and his the rest of his sort of body get into their work, um, they're going to be, I guess, taking the broad view. Be, yeah, they may well come to a different conclusion from what uh, Rita Safiotti and her Westport Task Force come to. Yeah, interesting. Oh, well, we'll see. I mean, you know, and maybe they just take a 20-year view and, and that's different than, than the, the right here and right now. Um, Mark, now, a special report this week is on junior miners. Uh, and it's a tough investment market out there for them. What are, what are the key takeaways from this? Well, look, that's right. That's the, the overriding theme that runs through. Um, it's if you're a junior miner or a junior explorer and you're looking to get some raise some capital to continue your project or get some more money for drilling, it's tough yards at the moment to raise money. Uh, things really turn down during the year, and that's despite the Aussie dollar gold price being quite buoyant. Mm. Um, now, some interesting stats, Ian Parker at Hartley's said last year there was only 26 IPOs by exploration or junior mining companies on the ASX. Of those 26, only four of them um, would you have made money on. Mm. You know, the rest of them, the share price has fallen. So if someone new comes along and says, I want to raise money, well, it's tough yards for them. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, now, there's always some positives in amongst all these things. Um, so one of those companies that wasn't a new listing, but it was a, a relisting after a major change is Bellevue Gold. Uh, they've had some great drilling results on their project. Uh, they've just come out this week and raised another $20 million. So, you know, if, you, if you're sitting on a good quality deposit, yep. there's still support for you in the market, but that's the exception rather than the norm. Mm. So one of the other themes that's come through is that in this environment, there's got to be a lot more mergers. You know, we just see a steady flow of listed exploration companies that are struggling along just surviving and they might be trimming their director's fees, they'll be cutting their overheads, they'll be shutting down their office in West Perth and moving to a serviced office, all just to survive. Yeah, now, the mergers don't often suit the people behind those companies, do they? Because there's usually, you know, if there's three directors for each and they're anticipating three directors for the merged outcome, it seems like there's just too many losers usually. Well, absolutely, <laughs> yes. But, you know, if, if you want to achieve something and, and create value, yeah. You know, it's hard to do that, just sort of muddling along as a, a small uh, listed explorer. Interesting, yeah. you know, Matt Burney has, uh, you know, large clientele through the Bulls and Bears uh, product that he has, which obviously we have a lot of news from that on our email and our website. He's very much about its sentiment, you know, and, and sentiment's just, that's the market, it's just sentiment, fundamentals are okay, but sentiment just gets you and... I guess he just says this, you just got to ride through it and and keep your, you know keep your head up and keep going until it comes back again. So we'll see. Um, thanks, Mark. Uh, join us for our breakfast on Thursday, February 28, to hear WA Treasurer Ben Wyatt explain the threat to the WA economy of the US-China trade dispute and what the McGowan Labor government is doing to ensure the WA economy can meet the challenges of today's global economy. Tickets are available on the Business News website. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Bayer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.